Hi, this is Against Everyone with Connor Habib, a podcast featuring my conversations with countercultural figures and presenting complex spiritual, philosophical, and political ideas in an engaging and accessible way. Well, friends, this is the last episode in a series on esoteric Christianity for now. Um, the topic certainly comes up on its own on the show in all sorts of ways. Um, and as I say at the outset of a lot of these episodes, I am doing this because people are experiencing a loss of meaning, a sense of wandering, of meaninglessness, and that can lead to a real kind of futility. And I think especially when it comes to how do we move things forward, where do we go? What, what do we do um, in the cultural realm, in the political realm, in economics? We think that there's no way ahead. And I think when it comes to esoteric Christianity, it might not be the most obvious place to look for cultural, political, and economic solutions. But I do think there's something there. I mean, after all, we should look in places we don't usually look because we're stuck with old ideas that we've tried and failed, or we're just stuck with capitalism, which has welded itself onto our desires so seamlessly that it's become this parasite that we got used to. Um, and, you know, uh, that's just economics and politics, but also culturally, it can feel like we're sort of going around and around in circles without anything new coming out. Uh, there is something uh, that has come out of esoteric Christianity that addresses all of this, and it's called social threefolding. I'll give you a really quick breakdown about it um, before this episode with my guest Seth Jordan, which is about social threefolding, begins, so you understand what we're talking about. Uh, this is by no means a complete breakdown, but let's see uh, if I can do this in a few minutes. Social threefolding... Um, has to do with seeing the three spheres of the social organism in their own right. These three spheres are culture, everything that relates to the individual and the individual expression, including the arts, spirituality, education, science, play, sexuality, politics, which is everything that relates to the coming together of two or more people and how those interactions are usefully mediated, and economics, which has to do with the flows and breaks of the all, of all of us, that require cooperation between everyone, especially in a globalized economy, transactions, money, etc. These spheres have been noticed throughout history, so this isn't something that's just created or noticed by esoteric Christians or occultists. Um, so, you know, they're noticeable in ways that make them unignorable, actually, and that they've come up time and time again throughout history, most recently uh, by the economist Thomas Piketty, um, who I talk about with my guest on the show, how they interact and what is needed to create health amongst them was primarily noticed by the esoteric Christian Rudolf Steiner and later the many people who worked on and continue to work on social threefolding initiatives on personal, local, and global levels. The state of unhealth of these spheres can be expressed in this way. Each of these organs of the social organism, culture, politics, and economics, is experiencing a state of unhealth either through the diminishment uh, of one of, of the, <laughs> the spheres and its presence 
or through a kind of cancerous growth of one of the spheres or through a calcifying stagnation of one of the spheres. And this state of unhealth is due to and amplifies, unfortunately, it's a positive feedback loop, one of the spheres trying to dominate the others. So for instance, the economic sphere dominating the cultural sphere when it comes to the arts. And that leaves the cultural sphere begging for domination of the economic sphere by pleading to the political sphere. <laughs> Regulate economics so we can have more money in the arts. And that's, as you can see, maybe that's a good short-term solution for our problem, but you can see that that's not a state of health. Or the cultural sphere taking the form of a fundamentalist theocracy <laughs> um, by conspiring with the economic sphere around a certain kind of religion or spirituality to dominate politics, dominate the political sphere and how people gather, how they meet, what their rights are, all that sort of stuff. The way to heal this is by taking the social organism into account and generating the right kind of strength and nourishment for each of its organs or spheres um, in their own right. To have them then, once they're strengthened, to engage with each other um, in a way where they all have their own sort of ground to stand on, their own strength to bring to the table. And then when they, they engage with each other, that helps the individuals who live within this social organism which is us, all of us. That solution is called social threefolding. Um, and that outlook is called social threefolding, where each sphere or organ is strengthened in its own right so that there's freedom in the cultural sphere, equality in the political sphere, and kinship or cooperation in the economic sphere. When they're strengthened in their own right, they can communicate through the people who have vested interests in each particular sphere. Maybe all of this is too much <laughs> to go over, and I'm realizing that I can go on and on defining what threefolding is, but I'm not going to do that. I'm instead going to just devote an entire episode of conversation <laughs> with my guest, Seth Jordan, about this. Seth teaches courses about social threefolding, and he writes at the Substack, the whole thewholesocial.substack.com. And on this episode, we present what is, I think, a pretty compelling picture of how to move forward based on the reality of these spheres of the social organism. It's vital, I think, since so many of us feel like there's no real political will anymore. That's something I talk about on the show, uh, the episode I did with Franco Biforbrardi. The political will is dead, he said. And we can feel like there's no new good ideas. But this idea of social threefolding has not really been attempted on a large scale in any recognizable way yet. In any way, people say, oh, that's social threefolding, or that it's permeated society at large. It's a profound idea, or it's a profound approach, and it's just waiting for us to really bring it to life. And uh, it's connected to esoteric Christianity, which I think is really something interesting. What a strange place to look. Um, or maybe not. Maybe the occult um, and this kind of true Christian impulse is running through all sorts of things we don't think it is. Speaking of not letting the economic sphere dominate the political or cultural sphere, I ask that you do contribute to my Patreon. That's patreon.com forward slash Connor Habib. I don't 
uh, give up my <laughs> integrity by having sponsors um, whose products I don't give a shit about at all. This show is actually supported by people who listen to the show, like you, or you if you do support it. When you go to patreon.com forward slash Connor Habib, you contribute as much or as little as you like each month. And it's a way of saying, hey, Connor, I'm not paying you for your labor because nobody should be paid for their labor. I'm supporting you to do what you do in the world because I think what you do and who you are has a value in the public. And I feel its value in my life. If if you're saying that, if you're saying I feel the value of this in my life or I feel the value of this in the world, let's just evade the whole I pay you for your labor thing and instead say I offer money to show a sense of kinship here and trust that you, Connor, will do more good work, which is what I hope to offer. <laughs> so patreon.com forward slash Connor Habib. Thank you so much. And uh, all right, without further ado, here's my episode on social threefolding with Seth Jordan. Here we go. Hey everybody, it's Against Everyone with Connor and Beeb. Hello, Seth, Jordan, how are you? Pretty good. Thanks for asking. <laughs> <laughs> I'm very happy to have you here um, and be talking with you. Look, I, I knew I couldn't do a series on esoteric Christianity without talking about social threefolding, but this is probably one of the, probably will be the most surprising for people um, because you know, I talked about esoteric Christianity and technology, esoteric Christianity and the Holocaust, esoteric Christianity, um, and, you know, and religion. (laughs) So talking about a political, economic, and cultural project, um, I think might be a bit of a surprise for people. So we will talk about some of the basics of that. But I want to maybe start with this issue that is facing, seems to be facing everybody right now, which is that people seem to have no idea how to move forward (laughs) with the way things are going in the world. Um, I mean, something I really notice is people are sort of floundering and reaching for um, examples or, or, sorry, approaches, pathways that um, just clearly aren't going to cut it, whether it's libertarianism or socialism or a kind of really vague idea of anarchism or incremental progress through the political systems we already have. None of it really seems to be working. And I do think that what you're offering to you know help you know tend to and bring forward into the world and will, but Maybe we talk about getting to this place of no idea of how to move forward, because I think everybody can resonate with that, even if they're not on board with how we say we should. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's a great picture or a great question. Um, 
the first thing it reminded me of was that I was at Occupy Wall Street um, for part of the time that it was going in Manhattan. And yeah, that was kind of the overwhelming um, experience I had. There was a lot of um, there was a lot of generative activity. There was a lot of enthusiasm. There was, um, I mean, the forms that they used um, in terms of um, the general general assembly and um, also the spokes council. They had really good. I don't know. They had really good um, organizing techniques. And then every day people would go off into different parts of the city close by around the square. Um, and they would talk about ideas about reform. How do we, um, how do we transform society so that it's actually the society we want? And yeah, it was amazing just how kind of limited the conversation was um, by the ideas that, you know, that, the mainstream ideas that are out there. I mean, there are definitely alternative thinkers out there, but they're still kind of working within the same framework and just the basic framework that you mentioned of capitalism and socialism, um, really capitalism and communism um, is still, yeah, that's, that's been the battle for the last 150, 170 years. And at a certain point, we could say 1989, um, 1990, that battle was won by capitalism and communism is kind of dead. Um, but I have no love for communism. Some of Marx's ideas are, they have some validity to them, but at least there was a discussion between two different viewpoints and now there's no discussion. Um, so if you look at anything, I mean, like if you look at the socialists, uh, so-called socialists in America, the democratic socialists like um, Bernie Sanders and others, I mean, they're not anywhere close to actual socialism. Um, there's no, nothing about like, oh, you know, we should look at how we do ownership um, differently. We should, yeah, we should look at how we, yeah, how we do business differently. So it is, it's just a really, um, the field is really, um, I don't know, we've, you know, we've just left it now to the kind of like technocrats and it's, we've just gone into the minutia. Um, yeah, we're just like not making, we have no real creative ideas um, is my feeling about it. Yeah. And I, I think that, I think that um, socialism and communism really bolstered their, like their case and presence on this idea that you're talking about where, well, at least there's a conversation. I mean, in fact, I think Zizek says this explicitly, like, oh, this is why I champion communism because it actually shows us that there's an alternative, but like increasingly it seems like they aren't really like increasingly it becomes apparent that they're quite marginally different, which is mm -hmm. something that I think would really anger a lot of people. I mean, obviously I, I'm not against Marxism, communism, or socialism. I just want them to find their right footing and their right form and their right place in things. And I think that that's the thing that is uh, bothers me. And we can talk about, what maybe that right place is later and, and how those ideas can contribute. Um, and I certainly find myself more aligned with the people that like socialism and communism than I do mm -hmm. <laughs> with most of the people yeah. that are, you know, pro capitalism. But I do think, um, I do think that we're, yeah, we've gotten to this place where we're reaching for this thing that feels that is marginally different that isn't radically or fundamentally different unfortunately and because we feel so locked in 
any small difference seems like radical change. Mm-hmm. And again, I guess I have to just ask again to maybe go deeper into the question for, with you is like, how did we, how did we get to this point where the imagination is so constricted that this minor difference seems like a major a major one, a major distinction, and the only one we can really still think of or that we're grasping for. Yeah, I mean, it's great that you're asking again. Um, I mean, what it, what it draws out of me or what it, what it makes me think of, um, but I'd be interested yeah, also in, in where you go with it. Um, but maybe just to say, I think it, it comes back to, I mean, so we can take it, yeah, much farther back and go all the way to um, the enlightenment and to um, mm. the kind of scientific revolution. And at that, that juncture in time, there is a, um, a break that takes place. I don't know if it's, I don't know if we'd actually really call it a break, but just this kind of emphasis and focus on understanding the world purely materialistically um, and reducing everything to the level of material and also to the level of, uh, I mean, mathematics is also kind of a uh, kind of like foundational way of looking at things. And then so it does limit the imagination to say, like, this is the baseline reality to everything. Everything fundamentally is material. Everything fundamentally can be understood through the laws of the physical material world and mathematics. And this is where um, we can just bring in Rudolf Steiner's work and also um, Goethe's work. This is where especially Goethe in the 19th century sees things quite differently. And um, he makes the distinction that it, it, doesn't, it doesn't make any sense to reduce every, every realm of phenomena, be it yeah, the realm of plants, the realm of animals, um, humans, social life, psychology, human psychology, to all these different fields to try to reduce them to the level of the material. Um, and instead, Goethe's, um, Goethe wants to be true to the phenomena itself and come to know the phenomena in its own right, um, in its own, yeah, in its own realm. And so if you want to understand social life, to to understand social life according to social life, to understand it according to laws that emerge uniquely in social life and not laws that emerge through Darwinian evolution in in the realm of plants or animals or, yeah, or materialistic, um, just, yeah, physical laws like gravity. But we reduce everything to kind of um, the brain. We reduce everything to kind of these materialistic levels. And we think we've gotten so smart that we just don't think anymore. We just, there's, there's like no, nothing to explore. Um, I was just listening to a, an interview with Tim Schneider. Do you know him? Mm-hmm. No. Um, he's a really interesting historian around, especially around the Ukraine, um, Russia conflict, but he's, he wrote um, a book around tyranny. Um, he's written a bunch of things, but yeah, he became popular during the Trump era. Um, but he was just pointing to the fact that there's this kind of, um, this, this way of thinking in kind of more progressive Western countries that were, that were always headed towards progress. And, um, you know, if, if there's any sort of like wrinkle in that story, if something bad happens, like it doesn't matter, it's, you know, the, the arc of the universe curves towards progress. But what he points to is that it means like, we don't have to like really think about what progress is. We don't have to like hold ideals anymore. We don't have to like figure it out because we've got this faith in like this, this movement towards, 
um, some better future, but we have no idea what that better future really is or what it looks like. Yeah. Yeah. I, so one of the things that comes up on this show a lot is the essay theses on the philosophy of history by Walter Benjamin, which is a complete critique of this idea of progress mm-hmm. and that, um, and right. Who's pro- who's progress. And as you say, what does progress look like? Is it actually everything convening into a point? Like I was thinking as you're talking about, you know, the constriction of the imagination to be able to grasp for something larger or conjure up something larger or a new solution, or even just a wild and bizarre one would be great if someone came up with something completely crazy. Um, and how that is, uh, how that is mirrored in the constriction of uh, movement that we see in labor um, you know, Franco Bifo Berardi, who's on the show, he has this book called The Soul at Work. And he writes something in there. It's like, it's a very simple line, but it's so profound. It's, you know, what does work look like now? We type, you know? And so if you think of the constriction of the body constantly into this now sort of stair-like position um, and hunched over and typing, or even, you know, I saw three, just today I saw three, um, builders in a truck together sitting next to each other and they're all looking at their phones and i'm not i've already talked about you know the dangers of sort of uh, being a ludite when it comes to technology on an episode with andrew linnell about this but i do think so i'm not saying that but i do think seeing the constriction of the the body and the limiting field of motion when it comes to labor can give us an indication of how we're also thinking about it um because even people who aren't you know even people who are doing manual labor they're still increasingly facing this sort of computer you know, uh, position, uh, this typing position, this constricted position. And I think that that is a reflection of the imagination, like the movement of the limbs now and that system being uh, reduced and reduced and reduced can be seen as a symptom of the reduction of the imaginative capacity as well. And that definitely affects how we think about labor and that affects how we think about economics and that affects how we think about culture as as well sure yeah so whatever that movement is i'm just sort of thinking about that as part of the component of how we got to this point of where we can't sort of i mean it's just a picture it's not a explanation you know yeah for sure yeah yeah it's really incredible i mean how far things have gone especially in the last decade or two in that direction it's just like anywhere you go you know the first time i went to the doctor's office where the doctor didn't look at me but just looked at, you know, a little tablet the whole time and like asked me a few basic questions. And it's just like, yeah, now everywhere I go, the dentist, the doctor, anyone, it's just, yeah, to actually make any sort of human contact is like a pretty, a pretty strange thing almost. Um, You have to like really, you have to like break through in order to, in order to just have a human connection. And so, yeah, I think that definitely does play a role in, in the fact that we have no real social ideas um, because yeah, they would be, they would be rooted in some way in some sort of social experience and not just a kind of like momentary, like flare up of passion or compassion or whatever it is with like the situation. We just got kind of carried away on the storms of like different political leaders and all of these things, but it's not, yeah, 
it's very there's very there's much less phenomena to have it be rooted in these days. Yeah, I mean, I would say, and I think it's, I think it's, so just maybe I'll ask the question one more time. So we'll work and freeze mm-hmm. on this first question. Because yeah, I'm, I just keep thinking like, like something I just keep banging my head against, which is like, why is nobody, as I was saying before, coming up with a wild idea, even something which is completely bonkers, like yeah. as an alternative. And I think, you know, um, just as you were saying before, like we're out of ideas or, or, or Bifa would say like, there is no political will anymore. There's no such thing as political will, you know? And then he writes this whole book, Breathing, which is about, though he doesn't know it, reconstituting the strength of the etheric body. But anyway, that we'll just talk about that some other time. But I think like the, there is this, um, there is just the disappearance of even the attempt to imagine and that, I, I don't really know where that comes from. So something that I've been doing here in Ireland with my friend Una Lali has been on the show. It's just been doing this project, this utopian, it's called Utopia Ireland. Now, utopia is a word that Rudolf Steiner didn't like, but I'm taking it back from him and nice. uh, reusing it. Um, Great, be- yeah. Because, be- because utopia is the only thing, I think, that actually permits people to be a little like crazy like crazy enough to just simply ask a very easy question which has disappeared from the political economic and even to some extent cultural field which is what do you want you know how do you want things to look not based on just a resistance to what exists and how to sort of improve it incrementally well i want better schools and i want you know access to trains for everybody and help and it, we we ask that question to a lot of people and they still would answer in these very yep. <laughs> reactive yep. ways but then we yeah, would get right. these really you know um creative organic and sometimes quite strange answers that were really wonderful and beautiful as well but um yeah, so it, it seems like something has happened also to the imagination and the will and the rhythms of our lives. And you point out in one of your courses that, you know, the Marxist conception is that, you know, society, through dialectical materialism, you know, society ends up conditioning who we are and and making us who we are and all that but you're you rightly point out no that that's not so Hmm. but if that's not so then what is it that's restricting the ability to create these new forms yeah yeah so that's good i mean that really breaks it open in a whole other direction um so yeah from marx the picture being that everything is rooted in in the material conditions of the era. Um, so going all the way back to you know the religious prophets and things like that. Like in in Marxism, we can understand everything based on kind of the economic and like material conditions. Um, and Steiner Steiner says that's kind of true for the last like few hundred years. Like Marx kind of has it right for our time because everything um, is coming from that direction, but that's not the reality of human life. And it's not the reality of human life before that period. Um, So before that period, humanity to some extent, and especially the farther back you 
go was inspired out of the spirit. Um, and yeah, the farther back you go, there's less freedom in that. Um, there is, you know, if you think of kind of, I don't know, I listened to your podcast with David Wengro um, and have been reading that um, the Dawn of Everything book. Um, and you brought up this point in there where first David kind of described how like, oh yeah, isn't it bizarre that we think everybody thought uh, thought so differently, you know, a thousand or 2000 years ago when really like they were probably just sitting around making the pyramids being like, like, hey, like what are you having for dinner tonight? You know, just like normal construction guys. And I can understand where they're coming from uh-huh. in that I also think it's bizarre that we have this picture of moving from stupid to smart. Right. Like that's our evolution. We just like, we were stupid and superstitious. And then now we've become incredibly smart and it's just wonderful how smart we are. Um, but, but it is the thing that you pointed out in that show is that like actually different cultures, even different cultures today, all around the world, different human beings have different forms of consciousness, different relationships to inspiration, different relationships to creativity. And, and yeah, if you go back in time, it's radically different. The, the thing that, you know, I think you guys didn't touch on in there really was, I just don't understand how you understand any of the ancient texts. Like, I just don't understand how you understand like the story of Gilgamesh or like the Bible or like any of these things, unless you're thinking like, wow, this is a really different consciousness that formed right, this right. story, the Iliad and the Odyssey. It's like, they're amazing stories, but like, you know, Homer's constantly talking about like what the birds are doing and like what signs it means for like how the spiritual how the gods are like working. And it's just like, it's very different than our consciousness today. Um, so yeah, Steiner, Steiner describes, and actually, I don't know if you had a chance to read this essay, but um, Thomas Piketty, who's a really interesting economist. Um, I mean, he also out of that, he's, he's working out of a stream of anthropology, um, which, which really does describe how in ancient times and earlier times, everything came through yeah, through religion, through, you know, the um, hierophant, the initiate, through the um, initiate king during Egyptian times. And then over time, the, the legal, the political realm um, has, has broken off and become its own thing, especially like Greek and Roman times. Mm-hmm. And only really in modern times um, do we have the advent of economics proper that it becomes its own thing. Um, so yeah, just this recognizing this other picture that originally really everything kind of came through the spirit, came through religion and through um, religious spiritual leaders. And then only over time did then the kind of political government rights life take on its own form, the economic life take on its own form. Um, and yeah, I mean, it's really interesting to, to talk about how Steiner's depiction of that maybe differs from Piketty and the anthropologists, but it's really also amazing how close it is, um, mm. how much relationship there is. And it's also amazing how, um, yeah, they can recognize that in our history, but they don't see what it, what it means for the present day. And what it means for the present day is kind of the conception of threefolding that we'll, that we'll get into. Yeah. I mean, I think, I think the basic, I mean, and even, even David Wingro, who, I mean, he's just, he's just great and really doing something really, really important. I think that the basic sort of Western, (laughs) it is Western really, um, uh, neglect of the difference in consciousness, um, structures and apprehensions, 
in people today and throughout time is, I mean, can only lead you to, um, to these kinds of errors, you know? Yeah. And I think yeah. what you're saying with the Piketty um, stuff, which I haven't read his book, but I read your essay about it. And I knew some of it, I knew the kind of gist of, of it before, but it's like, you know, if you would just see that these are three, <laughs> three phenomena or something like that. I mean, we, you know, this uh, esoteric Christian, I would say three beings that keep alighting or keep showing themselves in human life. I would call them culture, economics, and politics after, you know, the words that Steiner would use, but the culture, economics, and politics that they keep showing up for us. There are these forms that keep showing up, but they evince themselves differently in different cultures and individuals differently, and also in different um, eras, but they keep showing up or rather they never go away. They just find their way to come through us. So, you know, there's that great weird moment where economics seems to sort of shift towards capitalism and away from different forms. And at that time, it also, the the economic life seems to be opposed to magic. So there's all this, there's some scholarship about that. I don't think it's very good to be frank but done by <laughs> Silvia Federici and some others I mean I just I just it, again it's just she doesn't really think magic is real so you can't really take it too seriously what she says but there's this um moment where these two things seem to come in conflict with each other and you can see oh that's because um magic demands a different relationship to time than capitalism um, and capitalism brings a different kind of time sense. And so what, why I'm saying all this <laughs> and why this might sound a little muddled, I talked about a lot on the episode of David Connor McCabe. Well, one of the episodes, he's, he's a historian of money here in Ireland. But um, when the economics being shows up, sort of alights and <laughs> makes its presence known, and you see a cultural clash between one version of how culture is encountering this being and another version of how it's counter- encountering this being. Weirdly, even though there's such a huge clash and difference, it actually in some ways um, proves the presence of this uh, and stability of this being and the necessity of it showing up. It does, there's not an agreement there in these encounters, but there's a, but there, there, there definitely is the sort of uh, uh, affirmation of, of the presence of this sphere. Yeah. Um, yeah. I haven't actually thought about it myself in relationship to being, um, to beings, but it does make sense in terms of they are activities that we enter into. And mm-hmm. so we can experience it as a realm of being um, with a very specific quality um, I think to describe it in the terms that, um, that the anthropologists use. And so, yeah, maybe to point that it's this guy, George Dumazil that I had never actually read before, but then it's also probably by Strauss and, um, Mircea Eliade, those anthropologists and perhaps others. Yeah. It's this, they call it trifunctionalism because they, they describe it in terms of three functions. Um, so the, the three functions being the kind of like spiritual, 
um, religious function, so what they call the sacral function. But yeah, it makes more sense to call it the cultural function. And Steiner really focuses that on, yeah, it's just about the question of human development. You know, it's just, that's most, mostly education today is like the big point there. But yeah, the news, like all of these things, medicine, all of these things are questions around what does it mean for the human being to become themselves in the world today and think for themselves and believe what they believe. Um, and then this, this kind of middle function is the kind of protection security function. So in any society, how are we going to protect ourselves from outer threats? How are we going to protect ourselves from each other? Like what's, do we need a police force? Do we need an army? Um, and so this function has always existed. There isn't a society, well, that I know of, um, where there wasn't some sort of what these anthropologists call a martial function. Um, and then the third function is the economic function. It's just obvious that we have to feed ourselves. Like we have to feed, clothe, and shelter ourselves. And so there has to be some sort of economic activity. And what's amazing is, you know, they, they look back and they say like, wow, these three functions have always existed. You know, I don't know. They don't, at least Piketty doesn't point to a society that was ever um, an atheist society, but I've never come across. I mean, there are individual atheists who arise in kind of Greece and Rome and maybe other times, but um, there's no, every society has this kind of spiritual religious um, impulse. Um, and also the priests run the schools and they're the doctors and they're the artists. They're all these, they take on all these different aspects of culture or kind of human development. But anyways, these three functions, they look back and they say like, wow, these are everywhere in every society. And then they, they lose the thread of it they don't say like, why is that the case? Maybe because these three functions are absolutely essential to human nature. Mm -hmm. You know, how could we live without the economic function? How could we live without feeding ourselves? Mm -hmm. How could we live without human development? Um, even if you just teach your child to speak, like that function is being realized. And then the middle function is really, we talk about it in terms of security and um, and the military and things like that, but it's really just the realm of governance, government. What are the agreements? How do we live together? How do we not harm each other and help each other? You know, it's just this kind of this function of living together. And what are how do we want to do that? What are the agreements we want to make? So these three functions, they are very different realms, very different realms of quality, very different experiences. If you just enter into an economic activity or a political activity or a cultural activity. Um, but they're also just like absolutely essential functions of social life. Um, so this is, maybe I'll just say, I did listen to your, um, your piece, your, your, um, your conversation on utopia in the, in the fall. That was actually the first, the first, um, of your podcast that I listened to. And I, I love the impulse, the desire to say like, can we loosen up human thinking? Mm -hmm. Um, can we just think some thoughts together? Um, and I do have a little bit of an issue with the term utopia because it's also, I mean, in a sense, all these people who think like, oh, we can just keep on doing things the way that we've always done them. Mm -hmm. Like that's utopian thinking. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, Schumacher makes this point, if Schumacher makes this point that, um, we're treating resources within capitalism, we're treating resources as if they're, um, uh, a kind of eternal form of income and not as limited assets. Mm -hmm. And like, that's utopian thinking. Like to just think like the party's never going to stop and we're just going to keep on like <laughs> having these resources. Yeah. It's entirely utopian. We've just created so many externalities um, 
and that's human human beings and human psychology and um you know we just like we're just grinding people down and we're grinding the earth down and it's utopian to think it's gonna like last much longer yeah yeah i mean i like i like that you're saying that because it's making me sort of refine the idea a little bit and here i would actually kind of base it on my response on something that and one of your colleagues, Nikonor Perlis, has said about threefolding, which is that there's a version of threefolding that is not sort of, there's no awareness around it. It's just something that's kind of running through and therefore can unfurl itself in a distorted way. On the same way people have said about anarchism, well, isn't, aren't we already living in anarchism? Aren't we all just doing what we want? There's rational anarchism, you know? Mm. And I would say that, yes, that is a form of utopianism. Um, and that that utopianism always holds within it the, uh, uh, an, a, an aspect of unachievability. But the, mm-hmm. but the people that, but when you view utopianism with that in play, with this absence of achievability in play, and instead view it as a gravitational sort of pool to, or, or a process that has a kind of a pool in it, a kind of a, that that the entire point of it is a striving not a then like that there's a utopian gesture and it doesn't lead towards or even hope for a state and by state i'm well i first of all mean a state in the political sense but i mean you know an achieved and and static state um so i think i think i would just say that there's a realized version of it that Mm. is what i'm trying to propose and I just use the word. I mean, I, it's funny because I, I had all these reservations about it because of Steiner's warning about it. And then I just thought, mm-hmm. well, no. I mean, I think you even include this passage, right? Where he's like, you know, don't be utopian, but you can take apart every single thing I say here. Mm-hmm. And when I looked at that, I was like, yes. And I will take apart that thing that you're saying that don't use the word utopian. Basically. Yeah. <laughs> so I'll, I'll break that down because I think it stirs something in people. Um but it is necessary to include that sort of, you know, that unachievability in it when you, you know, present it to people. Um, I mean, I think, you know, just to talk about the way that you were presenting culture, economics, and politics as well. I mean, I think one other way for people to understand this. So these three spheres, aspects um, of the threefold social order, you know, which which is essential, but once we realize it and start engaging with it in um, an intentional sort of pure and purposeful way, we can see culture being a question of the individual politics as being a question of two or more sort of gathering two people, how do they interact? And economics is a question of the all. And when we when we look at it that way, then it becomes harder to sort of quibble with the with what culture is or what politics is or what economics is. I mean, it doesn't give us the, the disadvantages doesn't really give us the full picture, right? But I think that, you know, talking to people in that way, well, there's you and then there's how you and others interact in society. And then there's the question of how everybody gets how what the question of of everybody just living on this planet well this is obviously a globalized version of the question of economics but i think that that kind of can clarify it for people now to sort of bring these 
um, in relationship to each other, I want to do that, but I maybe want to talk about them separately first. And this is one of these sort of ideas of social threefolding is to strengthen each of these spheres in their own right so that they can be brought together productively. Um, so maybe we start with culture, um, <laughs> the individual, and something that you uh, write about, the idea of separating culture from the state. There's a quote from James Joyce that I love um, where he says, uh, as an artist, I'm against every state. The state is concentric. Man is eccentric. You know, mm-hmm. and I, as an artist, you would have to mm-hmm. agree, right? Like that is an artist statement. Um, yeah. But, you know, sort of pulling these apart, I think a lot of people would think that that was a horrible thing to do, first of all. I don't. But um, I I have a lot of... Uh, experience and noticing how disastrous and horrible that is um, as someone who has done sex workers rights work <laughs> and uh, and worked a lot uh, studying sex and culture. Um, and maybe we can talk about that a little bit more, but why don't you maybe start from there of why this is a necessary task? Yeah, um, there are a lot of different directions to come at it. From I mean, maybe to tie it back to what you were saying um, with the kind of culture recognizing as the realm of the individual um, government, the kind of relationship between people, specifically yeah, two or more, the, relation, uh, the agreements they make, and then economics having to do with really the whole world, um, especially today, it's a world economy. Um, but yeah, so if we, that's, that's a tension that that so many different thinkers have seen. I mean, it's just so obvious. It's like the tension in American politics between like individualism and kind of collectivism. Um, so this, this tension is kind of one of these just like impossible nuts for the, for the current system to crack. They just can't like get their heads around it. And it is Martin Luther King Jr. pointed to it at one point saying like, there's truth and kind of, he's talking about capitalism um, the like individualism of capitalism and there's truth in the collectivism of socialism. Um, but what we need to do is find that both of these values can have their place, their right place in society. And he calls that a, a socially conscious democracy, mm-hmm. but he doesn't really say what that looks like. And yeah. And Steiner's Steiner's insights are so remarkable because he does show what that looks like. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's, he really recognizes that it's, yeah, it's in the realm of human development that people need to have full freedom in their own, in their own lives. Um, so it is, it's interesting that, um, that people just don't, they feel this, but then they don't. So there's a really wonderful quote by Steinbeck. I would read, um, that just, I don't know. I think everyone resonates with it. He says, and this, I believe that the free exploring mind of the individual human is the most valuable thing in the world. And this I would fight for, the freedom of the mind to take any direction it wishes, undirected. And this I must fight against, any idea, religion, or government which limits or destroys the individual. This is what I am and what I am about. Yeah, so I think I think that ideal, like people hear that, and I would imagine all your listeners, but I could be wrong, would just kind of like light up with the gesture of that ideal. Like, yes, like human beings should be free in their, in their 
thinking and their beliefs. Like there should be this like freedom of one following one's own conscience. Um, and yet we, we violate, we harm that freedom constantly. So we understand it really strongly with religion. We separate church and state. Um, it used to be the case that um, the principle was that whoever ruled the realm um, would also dictate the religion of the realm. So if you were in like a, you know, a little state, a little German principality, like back in the day, and your, your prince became a Protestant instead of a Catholic, you'd have to become a, a Protestant. Um, and so over the centuries, that's, that's transformed where now, yeah, what a person believes has nothing to do with the state. Although obviously in plenty of countries, that's not the case. Um, I mean, there's still an Anglican church in England and yeah, and there's plenty of like theocratic states. But anyways, we recognize this is what we're moving towards. Um, but when it comes to other aspects of culture, um, we get it also with journalism. We get that there needs to be a separation between um, the press and the government, although that is constantly eroded. I think I'm going to maybe write an article about that soon. Um, but yeah, especially when it comes to school and state or nation and state, um, those are two cans of worms, but especially uh, I'll just say school and state because everybody says like, oh, no, no, like, yes, we need academic freedom at the university level. That's when teachers should be really free to like teach out of their own what they believe. And like, there needs to be like, you know, there needs to be freedom there. But then when it moves, you know, to, to before that, to high school and, and earlier, we just think like, no, 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 no. The government can tell teachers what to teach. Like that's, that's what's best. Um, which may, we shouldn't call them public schools. We should call them government schools right. because that's what they are. And the government is telling people what to teach. And we're furious when they're telling them to teach things that we don't think is true. So when they're, you know, when teachers start teaching um, critical race, well, no one's teaching critical race theory in earlier years, but they're teaching out of critical race theory, out of that understanding. Um, and so people are like, no, I don't want my kids learning about that. And so they freak out that the government is kind of, endorsing that in some way. And then, so they reject it. And then people who are on the other side, you know, it's just this constant battle between like, you're indoctrinating the kids. No, you're indoctrinating the kids. And it's just this back and forth. And like, <laughs> you're all indoctrinating the kids because you're telling them, you know, you're telling the teachers what to teach. Um, mm -hmm. And so, yeah, I really- you're Definitely indoctrinating the teachers. I mean, that's, yeah. that is without a doubt present. Yeah. 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 So in a sense, anybody is indoctrinating. I mean, indoctrination is a funny word, but any teacher who's teaching is bringing certain ideas. But yeah, it's a question of can the teachers actually be free and can the parents choose the teachers based on kind of the understanding their child's um, development? Oh, this is the kind of education they need. Um, and so you would what you would get if you did that was you could still have some, uh, you couldn't really have government schools. You couldn't have government funded schools. Mm. You could have some sort of like American schools that are teaching like American civics or whatever, mm. but you would just have in the same way that with the establishment clause in the first amendment, you say um, the government shouldn't establish um, or prohibit any religion. You, you would have the same separation. You would say the government shouldn't establish or prohibit any type of education besides, you know, overtly um, harmful, you know, ones that are actually leading to harm. Um, but that has to be really, you know, we just, yeah. the government has to really just like hold back and let human beings like actually develop themselves in the directions that they want to develop themselves. Um, 
Yeah. Yeah. It's it's very it's very difficult, but maybe like a maybe an example from from Ireland will bring some I don't know some comfort to people are listening to that idea because it can be a really scary one for people. But like when I look at um when I look at gay marriage in the U.S. Um, I mean, just first of all, just as a foundation, I'm critical of marriage at all as a sort of political construct for some of the reasons that we're talking about today, but, um, and as an economic issue, but the way it was decided in the U.S. really essentially through court systems and the sort of resentment and precarity of gay marriage in the U.S., it's just like always there. You know, and gay rights, like, it leads to all these questions that are now happening in Florida and Texas and Alabama and blah, blah, that are these, like, gay rights and trans rights questions. Whereas in Ireland, the way that gay marriage became a law or legal was um, that people uh, all voted on it. I mean, this is more possible in a tiny country like, like this. But what that meant was that people had to go from door to door and talk to their neighbors about love and desire and, mm-hmm. and sex um, to, to some extent. And that these questions of who I am, who I love, who I desire, who I want, what I do, those all entered the social sphere, you know, um, or the social realm in this really beautiful and profound way. And like, it feels so much more lasting and durable here in a way. It just feels real. And I'm not saying that there's no homophobia here. There certainly is. And I'm definitely not saying that the legalization of gay marriage is like the be all end all of any sort of political rights. Field. But the fact that a readiness in culture um, is what lent itself to the creation of a law, that's a, a real and actual communication that's not happening in all these kinds of court cases and things that are decided in the political realm and then filter down or are meant to sort of bludgeon culture into submission, either for good, quote unquote, good or bad, you know, reasons or to good or bad effect, you know? Yeah. Yeah. I think it's, it's a great example. I mean, it's, yeah, it's, it's also an example that touches on the civil rights movement in the States. Um, it's a picture that also, um, Martin Luther King Jr. described was that, you know, enacting laws by themselves doesn't change hearts. You know, the only way to, to the only the only good that can come out of laws by themselves is basically to like stop the most egreg- egregious harms against people. But if you actually want to change hearts, then like that work is the work of culture. Like you have to go out and educate people. You have to go out and like meet people in the streets. You have to, you have to organize and you have to, um, and yeah, it is important ultimately that laws are changed as well. Um, But it's just, I mean, this, yeah, it's just that human beings, we could have all the best laws in the world and it wouldn't mean anything really um, if human hearts don't actually change, if human hearts and minds don't change to kind of, to become more, um, yeah, I wanna say progressive, but that's such a loaded term um, (laughs) to become, yeah, to like move forward in evolution. There's a path. Yeah. Yeah. Compassionate, loving. Um, also, I mean, so this, I just wanted to touch back actually on what you said about utopia, because this is, I do think what you're describing does touch on, on something that there isn't a term for, which is what's really contained in the picture of threefolding, which is 
yeah, could we live in a like a human centered society where we're we're allowed, you know, the picture of threefolding is that it wow, there's yeah, there's so much that knocks on the door that wants to come in. Um, but you know, Thomas Jefferson had this picture of a um a living constitution mm-hmm. that every generation should create its own laws. And what would it mean to create a society where every generation is able to bring its own impulses, its own ideas, and form society out of that? Mm-hmm. Where it's not just, you know, we're always taking something from ancient times, ancient times. We're always taking like, you know, the constitution of the US or whatever it is, and just imposing it on the next generation. We're just like burdened by just like reams of laws and just like this is how we've always done it. Like there's just no way to kind of create out of ourselves. And I think that's what the question of utopia gets to. It's like, it matters that you're alive today and it matters what world you want to create. And the world should actually be created out of us, out of our conversation together, out of our work. Um, And so it should really be a human activity. It should be a really warm, there should be like room for it. You know, one of Steiner's critiques of the rights realm is that like, we can talk about equality, but there's no experience of equality because we're not actually participating. We're electing somebody every two or four years. Mm-hmm. Like if you actually, you know, if it was a more direct democracy or a more open democracy, as some scholars have talked about it, then more people would be participating in, in making laws and making agreements and seeing each other. And so what is like a much more radically participatory um, economic, political, and cultural life look like? Um, I think that's kind of at the heart of threefolding in a way. Yeah. So, so you're, you're making me think of back to when I was talking about beings, you know, that Mm -hmm. these are beings. I mean, one of the reasons, the main reason why I do that is that's, that's how I, when I'm kind of at my best, that's how I actually experience things. Mm -hmm. And that's just sort of, you know, finding its footing in esoteric Christianity and maybe actually better described probably by, um, Daskalos and that stream of esoteric Christianity than Steiner. But I think the, the, the thing that that leads me towards with what you just said is, you know, the, the idea of utopia and like sort of striving towards it using social threefolding as sort of base principle. My, my idea with that is that we create a kind of helper being um, that, that, or we, we, we help birth like, or, or give passage or presence or recognition to a kind of helper being for the social organism as not the social organism itself, but rather we institute the, the emergence and life of this thing that kind of helps tend to us as we tend to it. Cause that's there. It exists already, mm-hmm. but it's so yeah. distorted. It's like, you know, the thorn needs to be constantly taken out of the lion's paw, you know, like all the, like, you know, sort of ugliness and, um, and debris and all that needs to be brushed off and removed so that when we stumble, we have something in place that helps pick us up in the same way that, you know, when you're trying to form a habit, over 21 days, if you do it for 21 days, you create this elemental that, that can help carry, carry it with you. It doesn't mean that you never blow the habit again. You really can, but it just becomes harder because you've got this little friend now that can sort of assist. And it's not through magic, but rather through the constant um, overcoming 
um, you know, the constant application and strengthening of your own rhythms and will and, you know, so I think it's something like that when I think of this idea of utopia and, but I want to, I want to just sort of stay in culture for one more minute before we move on to the political, because um, interesting, I think, you know, science is located in the cultural realm um, in threefolding, which is, mm-hmm. I think maybe a surprise for people. Um, but you, you really do a lot when you point out that, um, you know, Richard Feynman saying like correcting people when people say, well, science has shown this, he's like, no, not science has shown, but this experiment, this effect. And when you write, look, it's that we can have these experiences that we can participate and have experiences that ground us in the effect of the experiment. Um, now, <laughs> that's not really how science is seen, right? So it's not seen as a question of the individual. And in fact, it's presented as an economic pr- proposition. And then this is a question of the all. This is always true. This is the all. This is all there is. And Therefore, not surprising to me that, you know, science is completely intercepted by the economic realm. You know, people, there's that huge, like, whatever, decade longer cultural war about evolution and creationism and, you know, all these prominent pop scientists getting into the public sphere and saying, look, you know, like creationism is bullshit and blah, 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 as if that were really the threat to science at the time, when clearly the threat, which <laughs> had a lot more of an effect than it now is dominant, is that the economic realm stepped into completely directing science. Yeah. And, you know, people couldn't get funding uh, and still can't get funding to do most innovative, thoughtful, worthwhile <laughs> scientific uh, research. Um, and I've learned that from my, you know, science education with, with Lynn Margulies, like, you know, she had to turn down money from the government, you know, and she wasn't getting funding to just look into, well, how do these, you know, uh, how do these bacteria and, and productives work in, in termite guts and stuff like that. There was no funding for that for her because yeah. it can be weaponized or directed by the economic sphere. So I think just to sort of talk about that, like the way and use that as a springboard for the way that these, the spheres can try to, or people in them or using them can try to use them to dominate the other spheres and how one of the ways they do it is by making you think that there's an in battle within the sphere, within the cultural sphere, within the political sphere, within the economic sphere. But usually if you look closely enough, it's that one is trying to sort of invade or intercept the other. Can you say more about the end battle? Yeah, well, just to say that like, usually when we think that there's like an in a cultural war mm-hmm. or a political battle or whatever, it's actually not. It's usually because one of the other forces mm. is trying to invade the sphere where it doesn't belong um, and masquerade itself as a, an aspect of that sphere. So the economic sphere showing up in politics and pretending it's a political question or 
<clears throat> you know, a political question showing up in culture and pretending it's a cultural concern, you know, this sort of thing. Yeah. 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 In a way, I mean, this is, it kind of touches on your first question of like, um, of, yeah, why is there such a like lack of ideas out there? Um, I'm always just struck with any of these things, how little um, actual kind of, I don't know, how like little creativity, how little um, faithfulness to like the ideas and to reality that we have. So, I mean, in a certain way, what you've just said about science, it's like, it should be so obvious to so many people. Like that is the scientific method. That is like, like, I mean, it's not, it's just like, I mean, from the essay that you quoted from, it's just, that is how people are taught about science. It's like dogma and ideology should have nothing to do with it. It's just like the battle of ideas. Um, And Steiner agrees there. He says competition actually has no place in the economic realm, but it has a place in the cultural realm Mm. that not all ideas are the same. Um, But the thing is it needs to like, it needs to be, it needs to just be like a free for all Mm. in a way um, in the cultural realm without political and economic, um, influences. So, yeah, I mean, you brought up the picture of creationism and, um, and, um, evolution, evolutionary theory. And that was, you know, a battle that raged in the schools for a long time. And, um, I mean, it hasn't really raged in the same way for forever, but there was a a kind of parody or joke that, that somebody came out with, which was like, oh yeah, like we should be able to teach creationism. And there's also something that I want to teach, which is called the flying spaghetti monster. Mm-hmm. I don't know. Did you ever come across this? Yeah, yeah, sure. It's yeah. And he was making the point like, oh, like this is so ridiculous, just like creationism is ridiculous. And the p- point that came out for me was like, yeah, like if you want to teach that, great. Like if you can find any students that want to learn that and any parents <laughs> right, right. that want to send their kids to your school, like <laughs> go for it. Like, why do we need the government saying again, like, no, this is the right thing to teach. And this is the wrong mm-hmm. thing to teach. Mm-hmm. Um, it's a kind of softer version within the field itself with the idea of consensus, you know, the scientific consensus around, um, you know, during the, the pandemic around just lab leak theory. Um, it was like, oh no, this is clearly didn't come out of a lab. Um, and then there were a few scientists being like, really, can you say that? Like, if we're just being true to science, like, shouldn't we still just be open to this possibility and like explore all avenues? And then, yeah, then they had to do like just a complete, you know, flip on it and be like, oh, actually, no, that could have actually been the case. Um, <laughs> uh-huh. And we know from, I, I was just listening to a someone who's written extensively on this, who's seen, you know, because of um, freedom, freedom of information um, requests, they, um, they were able to see the emails of a number of like the most prominent scientists, the ones who did the, the Lancet journal piece. Um, and also, yeah, Fauci and others who were talking about like, this might've definitely come out of a lab and then publicly saying like, no, there's no way this came out of a lab. Mm-hmm. And I don't have any position on that specific um, issue. It's just not like, I don't know. It's just not, I'm curious, but it's not, I don't have any skin in the game, but it's just amazing how with all of these things, we're just like, we shut down actual Mm -hmm. conversation. Mm -hmm. Whereas in science, in medicine, in education, like in all of these fields, we would want as much diversity of viewpoints as possible so that we can come to the best ideas possible. Mm -hmm. Because if we cut the conversation short, we're just going to be stuck with dumb ideas Mm -hmm. um, until finally someone can break out of it. So, yeah. Yeah. 
Yeah. And, and so then I think that that actually is a good bridge to the political realm because when, when we sort of move into talking about, you know, two people or more um, interacting and how does that play out um, fairly, you know, I think, <laughs> I think it's really interesting that again, I guess, I guess this has turned into a little bit of a uh, attack on, on Marxism and socialism show, but I <laughs> stand by my record of my podcast guests um, that I've had plenty of people that are socialists and communists on the show as well. But I think that like the, you know, the really funny thing about the way Marxism, communism tries to solve or, or, or sort of respond to its own interesting, thoughtful and complex economic critique is by offering a political solution, um, a political rights solution, which is about labor equality. And I mean, great, but then it thinks of itself as an economic um, solution. So like, then it's, it's the same thing I was talking about. Like sometimes we think that the battles that are happening between the spheres are actually just contained within a sphere. And that's one of the ways that these battles keep happening and don't get sort of productively resolved. But also then the solutions can become very confused in the ways that if we think that we are coming up with an economics solution, but actually we're applying a kind of a quality um, <laughs> labor issue, you know, response to economic critique, like that also isn't going to work out very well. Yeah. I mean, that's generous of you too, um, to call it a kind of like labor critique, because I don't know, I think if you just like straight Marx in a way, like Marx, his power of analysis is quite strong. He's able to see the ills of the economic system, but his solutions are kind of like non-existent. Um, so out of that, out of the kind of Marxist stream has come the labor movement and made all of these major changes from a political, you know, lobbied and, mm -hmm. and made, yeah, some really wonderful changes, most, yeah, many wonderful changes. But I mean, Marx, like the kind of picture that comes out of Marx and Engels is like the dictatorship of the proletariat. It's mm -hmm. like, you know, we'll just, the solution is that like, things will get so broken that the workers will just take over the state and like, they'll fix everything. Mm -hmm. And it's, you know, he didn't elaborate on what that would look like, mm -hmm. um, but it's just like, it's not much of a solution. It's like, we'll just take different people. I mean, we do this so much today. You know, it's like, oh, the people who are on top are bad. And like, we'll just take different people. We don't usually say the workers today. It's like people have different skin color, different um, gender, and we'll put those people like on top. And like, it'll just be better because of that. It's like a very simplistic, materialistic way of looking at it. Um, Although, yeah, people who have had experiences of like being a minority or a victim in some way will definitely bring different experiences to the table. Um, so that's important. But yeah, it's just still so darn simplistic. Um, but yeah. But that, you I mean, want to. Uh, yeah. Oh, sorry. No, you want to look at the political realm more specifically, though. Yeah, yeah, I think so. I mean, I'm just, I'm just now, you know, there's the Jacques Lacan, you know, moment where, it, you know, during May of '68 or just after, I think, uh, students came to him and said, you know, what do we do about this? How do we engage in the revolution? And Lacan was like, well, you're not going to like my answer. And he was like, mm -hmm. you don't want revolution; you just want new masters, you know. And mm -hmm. that was the, you yeah. know, I mean, that's that's the real issue. And I, 
I'm sure there are a million and one ways in which um, some leftists would critique what we're saying, but, you know, I hope, hopefully my generosity, um, <laughs> maybe we'll take it up a little bit where you're calling my generosity. I mean, the idea of like, you know, an equality in labor is really interesting and, and worthwhile as, you know, a political, as a political position, but like the real equality comes when nobody's paid for their labor. And I think that that's your, I, it's not that people are paid fairly or a sort of fuck you pay me kind of line that's being taken, but actually that you can't, you can't actually pay people for their labor. It's not, it's not possible. And so what does that lead us to in the political realm? Because really, um, I mean, there are lots of directions to go in when we talk about politics, but I think really like labor is at the, the, the front of everybody's mind right now. So yeah. what does that mean that nobody should be paid for their labor? And, and what does that look like? Yeah. Yeah. So it is, it's, it's, it's more radical than the socialists. Yeah. Um, I mean, Marx and everybody kind of fall short. So Marx saw that everything went from, you know, there's this like, this evolution from slavery to serfdom to wagery that we used to sell human beings whole. And then we became connected to the land and to our Lords. And now we're just, you know, we sell our labor, but we have to go along with our labor. And so the human being is being treated as a commodity. And yeah, that looks differently, obviously for different people. Like if you're working in the worst conditions possible, um, the reality of having to sell one's labor is yeah. It's, it's treating oneself as a commodity and people can feel it as a kind of um, slight against their dignity. And so, um, yeah, how, how, how kind of Marxism, I mean, so there was like a lack of creativity in this, in this, in this direction. And it kind of got hijacked by the, by the phrase, a fair day's wage for a fair day's labor. Um, And that's, you know, that's the kind of what we've been living with ever since is just like, yeah, we should be paid fairly for our work. And Steiner takes it farther and much farther and says like, we shouldn't be paid for our work. Um, what, what needs to happen is that just in the, if we, if we just think of politics as, as the realm of agreements um, between human beings living together in community, if we all lived together in community, we could come together and say like, okay, like what do, what do people need to live? Um, and yeah, different people will have kind of different needs. Somebody has four children. Somebody else doesn't have four children. Someone's elderly and can't work, whatever it is. Someone's a child. Um, all of these people have different needs. And then that can, that can happen within the, the sphere of, of agreements, within the sphere of rights. We can have those kinds of conversations. And then what people's needs are can then can then be an effect upon the economy we can then put on different hats if we're in the same community, but just, yeah, the economy can kind of work with that reality in the same way Steiner describes. Um, if you're, you know, a business person, if you're um, a business leader, a farmer, whatever it is, you have to work with the seasons with, with um, you know, will the crops grow this year or not? Like you just have to work with what nature gives you. You can't like, dictate to nature, like, no, this is, I'm going to sell whatever I want. And like, this is what you're going to like give me for a product. And in the same way, we shouldn't be dictating to human beings. Like, this is what you're going to give me for product. Like, this is how you're going to work. Instead, human dignity should take, yeah, should be 
yeah, should take precedence. Justice should take precedence. And we should determine those things within the rights realm. And then the economic realm should, should pick up those um, indications and say like, okay, well, this is the kind of labor we can expect this year um, or this quarter or whatever. And this is what needs people have. So yeah, it separates out human labor um, from the economic process. Although, yeah, then it becomes then it becomes a little bit more complex how you actually enact that because um, because to enact it you just you just um, yeah you just focus on the on the sale and the distribution the production distribution and um, consumption of commodities and you kind of split up the proceeds of goods so Steiner talks about a true price for goods um, and that everybody should you know if we're all kind of creating something together. Um, the true price of what that thing costs, you know, we're baking bread together. The true price of the bread is how much it costs for me as a human being baking it to, to produce that bread um, and um, what my needs are and what the needs of my dependents are until I can bake more bread into the future. Like that's, that's the price. That should be the price of the thing. That's the reality behind it. Um, this is super deep stuff. I mean, Steiner's got a course of 14 lectures just on economics and he says everything in economics can be understood within price and within this, this formula of true price. Mm, so sure. it really is something that could be unpacked for, for days. Um, <clears throat> but yeah, this, this is kind of gets you in the direction of how do we actually maybe, yeah, maybe I'll just say one thing, which is also why I'm a kind of um, my hesitation with the term utopian, because what Steiner's whole project is, is just to say, what is like the actual reality of things right. in a much more nuanced, yeah. like objective, perceptive way? And can we just work with that reality instead of constantly trying to put band-aids on things? So like the idea of a universal basic income, great. It helps like stimulate the, stimulate the imagination in certain ways, but it's just at the end of the day, like putting money in people's pockets and it doesn't change the like fundamental realities of the, of the economy at all. And how we should be changing things is not just by like simple solutions where we're like, great, we can go back to watching Netflix. We don't have to think about things. Instead, we should be empowering people to like dig deep into the fundamental realities of economic life, the fundamental realities of cultural and political life and participate in those realities in meaningful ways to form those realities out of our interactions together. Um, and so in that process, become selfless, in that process, become um, evolve socially. Um, so it is, none of these things are so easy. I can like sketch them, um, but yeah, ultimately like, it just takes like, you know, just like, it just takes real digging in. And there has to be like many <laughs> more people willing to dig in for any of this stuff to obviously like happen. Yeah, well, you have this great quote um, of Steiner's and <clears throat> uh, one of your uh, courses where it's, um, you know, how we, we need to acknowledge that we're complicit and a part of it. Mm -hmm. And they, he goes on to say, the less we succumb to illusions, the more we can develop collaborative momentum to bring about what leads to the healing of the social organism. So, you know, I think for me, the, the way I try to approach any sort of issue, <laughs> cultural, political, or, or economic is just to continuously ask myself the question, what is the human being? Because yeah. if I just keep centering that and orienting that, then what unfurls has to be at least an attempt to 
sort of just be real, you know, like be real with what these things are. And I, I think, you know, this is a good direction to take it in, even though maybe we'll end up talking about economics a little less, which always seems to happen in social threefolding. Um, but we'll talk about it, but, 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 but leading me to this question of how this connects to esoteric Christianity. Hmm. Um, I mean, I, I think, again, I, I just, I don't know why I keep bringing up Marxism and communism, but I do think like, it's really interesting that the place that communism exists for real is in the kingdom of the dead. When you die, there's no property. <laughs> there is a kind of equality and a real sense of like flows without holding on to anything. But I find, and, and, and there's, there's, a, there's a real um, interaction of the commons in a sense where you end up becoming uh, understanding of and blended with other people in a way that here is impossible and 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 you know that and here demands we work on a kind of individuation that when we're dead is not exactly available to us in the same way we're still individuated but there's a different relationship to it and so i just find it really interesting that then like the goal of communism is actually a spiritual a spiritual kind of spiritual existence but rather than trying to dissolve materialism or see what it is to get there it just drives us deeper into materiality by demanding that all action take place in the realm of material conditions and so this is one of the ways i'm bringing this up as an instance of like how we we're just not kind of getting to what's real and it ends up creating all these bizarre directions and solutions and sometimes complete opposite direction in which we should be going in and our inability to understand how to act and a fragmentation therefore of of everything so so when we instead start with this question of what is the human being or maybe you have another guiding question that you use i don't you know um then you know we're we're asking ourselves a spiritual question and i think you know so steiner asked this question and comes to this you know this understanding or this discovery of the of the social of the of social threefold and threefold social organism um and i would say that that's you know maybe a starter on how it relates to all the you know, Christian impulses and these occult impulses that are brought to us, but maybe you have uh, more thoughts on that than what I've just presented. Um, Yeah, I mean, there's a lot there. Yeah, one, I mean, maybe just take on heads on this, uh, this question of esoteric Christianity. I've listened to some of your episodes around it and yeah, was enthusiastic. Um, again, Steiner in a way in all his social writings or most all of his social writings, especially everything from like world war one on um, doesn't really address spiritual realities or spiritual beings. 
it's all infused with spirit in the most amazing way possible. Um, but if you know his work, it's just like so much before that, even, I mean, earlier in world, during World War I, he talks a lot about like the different like spiritual beings behind different cultures and things like that. He kind of, he gets right into it. And earlier still like 1905, he talks about, yeah, groups working together. And when a group works together, a spiritual being is kind of created um, in that. And so it is, you use the term magic. Um, he says it is a kind of like social magic that we're working with beings when we, something weaves between us that's greater than just the two of us or the 10 of us. Um, but yeah, 1917 on when he's really writing for the world, um, and is really like running with, I mean, so he's yeah. In connection with these different politicians. And then, uh, that doesn't work out, um, around, um, the end of the war. And then, so he does this whole grassroots movement. Um, but yeah, towards social renewal, his basic book was like, it was, um, it was reviewed by the New York times. And like, it was, they, the New York times, I think said it was like the most read book in Europe about social reform after the first world war. Um, so he's definitely writing for a public audience and leaves kind of esoteric matters out of it. But a couple of ways I would point to it is um, one of them is just, is just in the emphasis on culture. So usually when we think about social life, we think about big business and big politics kind of battling it out. And that was when I first discovered Steiner's work, the, the, the fact that culture plays such a significant role in society. And Steiner's actually saying culture is the fount of everything else. It's the fountainhead of all renewal. Um, so, you know, the ideals that led to the um, American revolution or to any, you know, political revolution come out of, you know, idealism come out of thinking come out of people with with fired up wills and hearts um so ideas have played a major role in our history um and yeah as we've already referred to like it's about changing hearts and minds um so steiner there's this aspect is that everything is coming really the idea is to kind of free up culture so that human beings can actually become inspired and out of such inspirations, bring new impulses into the world. And that means out of new spiritual inspirations, bring new impulses into the world, even if they're not talking about, you know, spiritual beings at all. Nonetheless, that's what's happening. Um, that's the kind of creative activity that comes out of culture and definitely comes, we see clearly out of art and, you know, realms like that. But it's just the realm of new ideas, intelligence, Steiner describes it. Um, so that's always there. And then Steiner really in the economic realm, mm. it's funny that you say economics don't get enough to do because some people, that's all they want to talk about. <laughs> and politics are usually the thing that doesn't get enough to do because Steiner doesn't speak. He doesn't have a course just on politics. Mm. Um, but yeah, but anyways, in the realm of economics, if you, yeah, in looking at his like economics course, it's all about, he talks about the entrepreneur as a half-free spiritual worker, as a half-free cultural worker, because they're working out of the realm of inspiration to bring new ideas into the world and create new goods, create new services. And so his picture of economics is very much of the spirit working into, um, through individuals, and through people working together associatively, um, working right down into the economic realm. Um, it's also much more than that, but yeah, it is that. Um, so yeah, in this sense, threefolding is constantly working to, to like create an opening for spirit, for creativity, for intelligence, for new ideas to come into the world. And then also I would just point to 
I think it's very specifically Christian in a sense, um, because how to say this, um, because of what we've kind of already described or that, that it's about every new generation coming into the world and bringing their own ideas. And so it's about this constant dying and becoming process. Mm -hmm. It's about creating a kind of form of society where we're able to constantly die to the old and bring in new ideas, bring in new spirit into the, into society. Um, and so in that sense, yeah, just the death, the, the dying and becoming process is very much the resurrection process is like essential to this picture of society, which is a very <laughs> Christian picture, obviously. Um, and also it's about constantly being reborn into like a greater levels, greater stages of love. Um, so yeah, it is just infused in a sense with kind of the Christian esoteric Christian perspective, but not explicitly so much in what Steiner actually, um, yeah, in his actual words that he brought. <laughs> yeah. And I wouldn't try to graft it on too neatly to the Trinity, yeah. but I think that there's definitely something, mm. something there about it. I mean, <clears throat> yeah, I, <laughs> I think, you know, you reference this moment of like, of, you know, post-World War One or, you know, this, so this book being read, you know, there's this, uh, you know it better than I do, I'm sure, but this moment where Steiner is called in to, by these European leaders to be like, well, how would you organize Europe? <laughs> you know, and he says this and this and this, and then at the last moment, um, like a treaty is signed and then I'll just sort of brush it yeah. all off the table. And it's interesting because there's that. And then there's the fact that this book is so popular, but then you also state, you know, a bunch of times in your own work, like nobody's ever heard of this, you know, so just yeah. evolving, right. So something has happened between yeah. then and now, and with, you know, perhaps, I mean, certainly, with events in World War II, there is some actual conspiracy to erase, conspiracy not in even a hidden sense, it's just out in the open, to erase anthroposophy and, and you know, all that work um, or appropriate it and turn it even worse to sort of like pull parts of it and turn it into Nazism, which with some cr critics of anthroposophy today believe that that's true, you know, that it, that it was, um, which is preposterous, but that there is this attempt to sort of wipe it out. But beyond that World War II aspect, why still, it, it, can't, it can't quite seem to find its way through. Like it's the threefolding is asking us again and again, here we are, hey, Thomas Piketty, yeah. <laughs> David Wengrow or whoever, yeah. um, everybody else, like, can't you see, you know, um, hey, you know, uh, liberty, equality, fraternity, like, but we can't seem to quite bring it into being. And this is, he says, this is the thing that we need to do <laughs> in the world. I mean, there's a lot of things that need to be done. Of course, reincarnation and karma, the heart is not a pump. I mean, just... This, the strangest collection of things, but this is the one that um, he says, look, this is, we need to create, just has to be somewhere. There just has to be yeah. one even <laughs> threefold <laughs> social organism. Um, why not? 
yet. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yet is a, is a key term. Um, I mean, I, I put it squarely on us. Like I put it squarely on you and me. Um, and then we can maybe extend it, extend it farther outwards. But, um, but, you know, it's just a question of, it's just a question of inspiration. Like it's, for me, it is like specifically when Steiner said like, this needs to happen. Very often the indication he gave was like the way it needs to happen is that like, we need to get out there and like, it just needs to enter more hearts and minds. Mm -hmm. Yes. We need to take certain types of initiatives. So yeah, you know, a number of business people and different, yeah, different types of people kind of came together. There's these kind of these very, um, like early forms of kind of associations. We haven't really touched on that, but but Steiner really gave his pictures around economics is the kind of like foundational picture is that instead of everybody competing against one another, um, people should actually be working associatively. People should be, be working cooperatively together, um, which is, you know, it sounds crazy, but like if you think about any corporation or any company, like any organization you've ever worked in, of course, they don't like pit workers against each other. Everybody works cooperatively together. Like this is just how we work within the family, within like any social unit, but like as a society, um, as a whole economy, we just like pit everybody against each other. And it leads to like a huge amount of like just wastefulness. Um, mm -hmm. So I don't know. Do you know Mondragon in um, the North part of Spain in the Basque region? Mm -hmm. Mondragon is, is wild. Um, People should look it up. M O N D R A G. -O oh yeah, yeah, yeah. I do. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. People probably pronounce that different ways, but it's like over two hundred and fifty different worker-owned cooperatives yeah. that all work yeah, as like a as a federation of cooperatives, mm -hmm. and they've been doing this for like seventy years, mm -hmm. and it employs like hundreds of thousands of people, and they've got you know their own schools, they've got their own um, banks, doctors, healthcare. They've just got it all. They've just like formed their own society with this kind of associative cooperative principle at the heart of it. Um, and we haven't been able to do that elsewhere um, in the same way. There are like definitely small initiatives in that direction, but, but yeah, that's the kind of direction things need to go economically. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, we've, it's, I mean, so I, I put it on us when I started this off and saying it's our fault, you and mine. Um, but I mean, just looking at like anthroposophy generally and the anthroposophical movement, great things have come out of it. So I think in a past episode, I heard you refer to the CSA movement, you know, in farming in America anyways, really came out of different uh, biodynamic farms. Um, so they were inspired by Steiner's economic and social kind of pictures and brought this, this way of farmers and communities to work together. Um, but then also like in Europe, there are all these what are kind of considered ethical banks. They work really on different principles um, around lending money, also around gifting. Um, there are definitely like individual initiatives. Um, the whole Camp Hill movement um, mm -hmm. was inspired by, you know, these kind of social principles. Um, but it is, you know, it's, it's the whole, we're talking about transforming all of society. Um, so it's great that people have taken like individual small initiatives out mm -hmm. of their inspiration. Um, and Camp Hill is not a small initiative. It's a huge initiative. Um, it's amazing what it's been able to do. But still, what's needed is the transformation of all of society. <laughs> and so you can work, you know, you can try to enact that on any front. You could work just to like, you know, reform democracy and separate money and um, money and politics. Like you could work 
any realm you want to try to bring about health, to try to bring more freedom into education or whatever it is. Um, but yeah, ultimately it just needs to get into like more, like we need to work to just like get it into more hearts and heads and, um, and to like actually create like a, a larger movement. And so, yeah, everyone is kind of to blame, but, um, but anyone who's been like lit up by the idea and then said like, eh, that's never going to happen. Like, I'll just go back to like, whatever's happening. Um, yeah. It's just like, that's what's going on as far as I can see. <laughs> it's a little depressing. <laughs> well, all right. I actually, I don't find that depressing. I find it like, well, it also means that every time it lights up in us and maybe it's lighting up for people that are listening, you know, like actually we're also bringing it closer um, it, it to being, maybe just keep the light on just a little longer um, <laughs> today, <laughs> today, yeah. keep it on a little longer today. Um, anyway, there's so many more things to talk with you about Seth and I would love to in the future. So, um, but just for now, uh, thank you so much for being on the show. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Thanks so much for having me. I mean, it's been, I've been excited to come. Um, I think your work is really, yeah, fantastic. So yeah, it's great to have like a place to kind of um, break open these ideas and to do it with you. So yeah, thanks so much. Thank you. And thanks everybody Uh, for listening. Bye now.